It was just right about 10 years ago, we were organizing a team of our women from here at church to go on one of these trips, like we just commissioned that team. And as we worked during that summer, I began to have a great burden for the women who were going to travel with me. And at one of our team meetings, I looked at them and I, I, I told them, if we run into any bad guys while we're traveling, I'll give myself as the hostage so that you can all go free. Now, maybe that was a little melodramatic or whatever, but the women looked at me and sort of shrugged, and that was the only conversation we ever had about it. Well, then a few months went by, and there we were in Portland at the airport. We had checked our boxes and our bags. We had hugged our friends and family goodbye, went through the metal detectors, and made our way out to the gate where we would wait for our flight. And it was at that point that one of the women on the team approached me and said, I have a gift for you from my husband and children. And when I opened that gift, it was this shirt. <laughs> and, and it was that family's intention that I would wear the bullseye that said designated hostage the whole time we were gone. Evidently, they felt they also wanted those bad guys to know the team had already made a decision. Take Susan. <laughs> we're continuing today in our series called Night Vision, where we're learning things about God and things about ourselves that we only learn in the dark. And this weekend, we turn to Jeremiah, where God's people have been taken hostage this captivity will impact every aspect of their physical lives, but it seems that it's actually their hearts that God is after. It's their hearts that are at stake, deep within, at the core of who they are. Will they allow God to have their hearts? We'll be in Jeremiah 29, and that's page 1234 in the Pew Bible. When we get there, we meet the tribe of Judah. These are God's very special chosen people, the tribe from which Jesus, the Messiah, God's one and only son, will come. These people have been dragged far from home, cut off from anything familiar, they're held hostage in a strange land, and all seems dark. And if we're not careful when we approach this passage, we might think that the very first words God spoke to them are verse 11. Look at me, just look with me just for a minute. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. These words are true. God spoke them, and when we say that, we're accurate. But if we paint the picture that this is the very first word God spoke to people going through such tragedy, it might seem kind of simplistic for those people in such a terrible crisis. By the time we pick up in Jeremiah 29... 
It's safe to say that the people of Judah have already shouted out quite a number of complaints against God. Last week, Steve talked about that. He talked about lamenting. It's quite likely that God's people have been lamenting all over the place. But now, some time has passed. Their fallen city of Jerusalem is no longer smoldering. The bleeding has stopped. And the funerals for those slaughtered by the enemy have taken place. And God does speak to them, but he doesn't begin with verse 11. He begins by gently talking them through the reality of what they now face. And although thousands of people were taken hostage, I hope that we can put ourselves more into the sandals of just a couple of them. I'll call them John and Jane Doe. They're of the tribe of Judah. They were there the day Jerusalem fell. They were there the day their homes, the only homes they've ever known, were destroyed. And they were among the prisoners who made that long, forced march to Babylon. Let's hear God's Jeremiah 29 message with them in mind. And let's empathize with them. Let's feel it like they might have felt it. Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 1. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And then drop down to verse 4. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. These people have been dragged from their homes. Their city is plundered. And God tells them now in captivity, build homes. The reality is that their new mailing address will be some P.O. box in Babylon. God wants them to know if they will go with him, if they will follow his instruction, somehow they'll experience some bit of home, of shelter in captivity. He tells them to plan to stay. He doesn't want them using all of their energy trying to escape. He doesn't want them using all of their energy just looking for the rescue party. No, he wants their energy going toward staying where they are. He tells them to make plans to stay there, mark it in their calendars, organize life around it, prepare to be there. He tells them to plant gardens and eat the food those gardens produce. There's this idea that even in captivity, even in the dark, God's people will live and move by the cycles of the seasons. They were hundreds of miles from home. How will they know what the soil is like? What do you plant in Babylon? These are some of the details, some of the adjustments they'll have to figure out because they can't eat what they don't plant. God lets them have some personal responsibility 
in their situation. He tells them to marry and have children. It's, it's like he's saying, just because you're in captivity, don't wait for some far off distant day to pick up with doing the things you would normally do. No matter where you are, continue to do those things. But for all their lives, the only weddings they'd ever known were those that took place in and around Jerusalem. There was the ceremony of all their religious life, the baker who made the best cakes, the seamstress who did all the dresses. And God is telling the people, get married, even though none of those familiar things will be a part of it now. He even tells them to find spouses for their kids so they'll have lots of grandkids. And at that point, perhaps they got angry and they said, no, God, my children and grandchildren deserve better. He tells them to multiply. Don't just break even. Don't just survive. But God wants to do a new thing. God wants to yield an increase, even in the dark, even while they're held captive. Verse 7, God says, Work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. God wants them to pray for the very bandits that destroyed their city. He wants them to work for the peace and prosperity for the people who they believe are responsible for ruining them. He tells them to pray for the city of Babylon. Imagine John and Jane Doe's shock when they hear these words. Did God really tell us to pray Pray for these people who've hurt us so deeply. Pray for the people that represent all that's bad in the world. If they're going to be able to do that, they'll have to learn how to forgive. They'll have to learn how to fight all those natural urges for retaliation. And they'll need to come to terms with the fact that they are helpless and hopeless to make any quick changes on their own. It will be a process for them, adjusting to the dark. If they're going to let God take their hearts captive, they'll need to let him change their hearts. There will be so many adjustments, not after someone turns the lights back on, but while it's still dark. Verse eight, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says, do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. God wants them to listen to his voice. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of confusion, dark, captivity, he acknowledges there will be liars, there will be noise. But he wants them to know that even in that desperate feeling situation, they can hear his truth and they can follow his truth. Verse 10, this is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, 
but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. Seventy years. If they're really young, they may live to see the day of the rescue. But if they're in their 30s or 40s, it's almost a foregone conclusion. They will die with no resolution. They, they will be forever in this situation of captivity. God doesn't sugarcoat their difficulty. He doesn't minimize their pain. In fact, he confirms it. He tells them, this is where you'll live out your days, held hostage in a place you would never have chosen to be. Then, and only then, does he speak verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Somehow, in a way, these people probably don't yet understand, God is telling them that their future and their hope is not going to be wrapped up in trying to escape the difficulty, but their future and their hope will actually be rooted in walking with God in and through the difficulty. One of the greatest promises in all of scripture that God speaks to his precious people and he didn't say it when they were back home safe in Jerusalem. He speaks these words to them now in the dark. They will never have the lives they had hoped they would have. And yet God promises them Hope. What are people to do when the night is long? When their very hopes and dreams are at stake? When our kids were young, our daughter was about three, our boys were two, we had a babysitter at our house and Nick and I had gone out and the babysitter stepped into the bathroom and closed the pocket door. And what she didn't know is that way up high on the outside, we had installed a spring-loaded lock that was intended to keep our children from going in there and playing with the toilet. Well, what Nick and I didn't realize is that when a babysitter goes in and closes the door and six little fists beat on the door, the lock springs and the babysitter is trapped inside. Now, would you believe that babysitter thought my three little angels were responsible for her captivity in that bathroom? I mean, they were there, they pounded, but her release was way up high. Nothing my children could do about it. Here's the thing. The Babylonians had come to Jerusalem and destroyed it. 
bad Babylonians, bad Babylonians, bad Babylonians. But the Babylonians have no real power in John and Jane Doe's situation. The solution for all the people of Judah in captivity is God and God alone. Elsewhere in the book of Jeremiah, God speaks to these people he loves and he says, call to me and I will answer you. I will heal my people and let them enjoy abundant peace. The days are coming when I will fulfill my gracious promise I made. Well, that perfect, loving, gracious, expressive God owned that he was, in fact, responsible for their situation in captivity. In verse 4, he had said that it was he who had exiled them to Babylon. In verse 7, God said, the city where I sent you into exile. In verse 10, God explained that he has a beginning and an end for this time of captivity. The people can't see it, but God has a plan that he's working. And in verse 11, the God who took responsibility for those 70 years would be the one who would work his good plans for them to give them a future and a hope. God had taken them into captivity and he alone would be able to see them through captivity. Think a minute about John and Jane Doe when they were dating or getting married. Captivity wasn't on their minds. When they were talking about hopes and dreams, how many children we'll have, what we'll do with our lives, Babylon wasn't even on the radar Nothing prepared them for this. But now they find themselves there. And if they refuse to trust God in the dark of Babylon, they'll be refusing God's help to them through Babylon. Who they really and truly are and who they really believe God to be will be revealed as they live out the rest of their days held captive in a place they would never have chosen to be. A few spring breaks ago, my family, all five of us, we were really sick. We had high fevers, vomiting, all those symptoms. And my husband was the first one who got sick, and he was also the first one who got well. So one day we're standing in the kitchen, and he's making a list, and he's going to go to Costco for supplies. And I looked at him, and I said, Nick, in all of our married life, I've never asked this of you. But while you're at Costco, would you go in the women's products aisle and pick me up something? And Nick looked back at me and he said, I'm a broken man. I will do whatever you want me to do. <laughs> so Nick left. I slumped back over in the sick chair. And about 30 minutes later, the phone rang and it was Nick in the aisle. Darling, there's a lot of options. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to get you. Now, let me tell you, Nick made a promise in the safety of our kitchen. 
but he was given opportunity to live it out in the jungles of Costco. What a person is willing to say in the light is one thing. But how they actually live it out in the dark is an entirely different thing. Will the things that you and I said when life was relatively easy be the way we live when our circumstances force us to adjust to a new way of life in the dark? I'll confess, I hesitate to talk about things I'm learning because I've got a long way to go, much, much more to learn. But in these recent years, my husband and I have been needing to adjust to life in the dark. God has taken us to a place that feels like a far and distant land. Nick says that he feels like he was out in the middle of the ocean being pummeled by waves and that he's just been washed up on the beach of a deserted island. It has to do with our two precious boys who have autism. We prayed for seven years for children and many of you prayed with us. Our daughter was born in 2006 and our boys were born in 2007. And today at the age of six, Daniel and Joshua both experience quite a bit of developmental difficulty. Well, back in 1987, when life was safe and secure for me in Ohio, I had made a commitment to God. I said, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. I'll do anything you want me to do. And it worked out great for a while. I came to Portland and got to work at a Bible college. I got to go to seminary. I got to come on staff at our church. 11 years ago, I went to the Middle East with one of our teams. 10 years ago, I went to Africa with one of our teams. Nine years ago, I was working here and teaching at a seminary. But in these recent years, mission trips have been replaced by trips up I-5 to OHSU. Many hours each week, my husband and I are taking our boys to appointments that have put us in strange places where we're meeting all kinds of people. We're learning to love all sorts of people that we never would have ever met had it not been for the difficulty There isn't time for me to go into it all, but I want you to hear me clearly. Autism is not what has taken me to this new land. The Babylonians haven't carried me off anywhere. In ways I can't fully articulate, I'm very confident that it's God who has brought me to this place. And in his perfect plan, He will need to see us through because we cannot do it on our own. It's not easy at all. My children have been misunderstood in places I thought they'd be embraced, and they've been embraced in places I thought they'd be rejected. Nothing prepared me for this. 
I haven't always carried myself courageously. I haven't always carried myself sinlessly. But by God's grace and mercy, I'm learning to adjust. To live the life God has given me instead of chasing after one that isn't mine. I'm no longer free to travel the world, but interestingly, I think I'm winding up right where God wants me to be. Living with my hopes and dreams in God's hand has somehow clarified his plans for me. Two or three years ago, Nick and I sat with the leader of an organization and we were advocating for special needs families and it it seemed like the man we were meeting with was sort of surprised by Nick's passion and when it became my turn to talk, I explained that what we really experienced was that if it was someone else's child, God would not have been able to grip our hearts, but that God did what he did to get our attention on this topic. God has different plans for each one of our lives. And ever so slowly, I'm learning to adjust. And it appears that I will have the rest of my life to learn these adjustments. I wonder if you're here this weekend and you feel that your heart has been pulled from all that was familiar and taken to a land that's far away and you find yourself adjusting to the dark. Is it a financial crisis that started it? A childhood trauma that left you with a broken heart? The death of a loved one? going to a prison to visit someone you care about, a divorce, cancer, a fertility clinic. Maybe it's hitting age 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 and you desperately long for the things you've always longed for and that you don't yet have. When we consider the people of Judah, God's very special, precious people, his way of saving them was actually by taking them hostage. Is your heart open for God to do that? Adjusting to the dark is a process and no one does it quickly. We desperately need God even to show us how? There's a woman named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and she wrote a book about death and dying. And in that book, she deals with a lot of grief issues, a lot of loss, a lot of things that cause emotional upheaval for people. And she suggests that there are these distinct stages that people will go through at their own individual pace in their own time. I would add that there's certainly no cookie-cutter mold, but my personal experience has been sort of a bouncing back and forth all the while moving forward. 
Let's look at her five stages of grief. The first one, denial. What? This isn't happening to me, huh? Anger. Why is this happening to me? Bargaining. Oh, God, I promise I'll be a better person if you will just blank. Depression. I don't have anything left. And acceptance. Acceptance is where God brings peace. And the person realizes that with God, you can be prepared for anything. Maybe as you look at the stages of grief, you better recognize where a friend or family member is. Or maybe you see yourself in the process. Maybe a step for you will be to relinquish it to God and invite his presence to guide you. Maybe it will be that you'll talk to a friend or mentor or maybe you'll be a friend or mentor to someone. Or maybe you'll sit down and really begin to hash things out with a counselor. I've done a bit of all of those As I walk forward in the dark, I want you to hear that God is proving himself true. And the things he spoke to the people of Judah so long ago, he speaks to you and to me today. He knows the plans he has for you. They're good plans, not disaster. He intends to give you a future and a hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we wait in these moments, I invite your Holy Spirit's presence to come to all of us. I cry out to you, especially for those who find themselves in the dark, brokenhearted, disoriented, far from home. Will you be with them? Will you bring others to join them in that place? And will you show them the way? May those who adjust to the dark see you high and lifted up, enthroned, taking care of everything. We praise you and we wait on you. Make it so. Amen.